Good morning. I am Darrell Gunter, your host for Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM. Today, we are very pleased and honored to have astronaut, mountaineer, and medical doctor, Dr. Scott Paraniski, as our guest in our studio today. It is not every day that anyone has an opportunity to interview the only person in the world that has been both in space and climbed Mount Everest. Scott, welcome to the program, and thank you for interrupting your extremely busy schedule and join us to share your thoughts and insights on leadership. Well, thank you very much, Gerald. It's a real pleasure to, to be here with you and, and talk, to talk to you again. It's been, uh, been a few months since I, I met you uh, at, a, at a conference, and I'm uh, glad to participate. You know, I, I felt that uh, that was the highlight of the conference for me, uh, simply because I, I came there for a business practice. Needless, needless that I know that uh, I was going to have the opportunity to meet someone uh, as great and 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 as and as achievement as as much achievement as you have um, at the Outcell conference, you really had us intrigued about your exploits in space and your exploits uh, in Mount Everest. But uh, considering your very unique, dynamic, diverse background of achievement, share with our audience your background and how you decided on a career in medicine, and then of course being an astronaut. Well, thank you very much, Gerald. I appreciate your your kind words. I, you know, I've been uh, a uh, beneficiary of uh, you know uh, a lot of great opportunities uh, in life. Uh, you know, very supportive uh, parents, and uh, you know, I had the opportunity to travel uh, quite a bit and see the world when I was young. So I just had a uh, very open eyes to uh, you know uh, the challenges uh, that the world faces, and and uh, and very interested in exploration and science and and uh, figuring out ways to uh, help solve some of those those issues. So. Uh, medicine was always something that really appealed to me. Uh, my grandfather uh, uh, was a physician. He unfortunately died before I was born, but I, that may have planted the seed, I guess, uh, just the family talking about uh, my grandfather uh, and kind of thinking along the lines of, of medicine. But, you know, when I was uh, uh, in junior high school, I, I lived uh, in uh, West Africa and, and traveled Around that continent and also through the Middle East, and and uh, you know saw firsthand uh, some of the great medical needs of the world, and and uh, that really solidified my desire to uh, pursue a career in medicine. But all the while, uh, you know, my father had worked uh, with the Boeing airplane company uh, early on in his career in support of the Apollo program that first sent men to the moon, and and so uh, I also had a a love and fascination for everything related to aviation and space. So I had you know, model rockets and posters on the wall, and and I uh, thought in the back of my mind, uh, boy, it would be incredible someday to, to go fly in space uh, myself. So that, that's kind of how uh, my hybrid career got started. So you knew as a young man, as a young child, that you wanted to go to space. I, I think I did. I you know I started off all of my, my talks. In fact, I think I showed it at the, the Outsell conference where we first met, uh, a picture of me at age five holding a little model rocket in front of one of the, uh, the assembly facilities in Michoud, uh, Louisiana, where they built the, the first stage rocket uh, for the Saturn V. And uh, you know, so I, I guess even uh, back at that tender age, I, I had uh, high aspirations. And uh, take us back to your junior high school in Dakar, Senegal. I mean, most of us have just a normal junior high experience, but how was it for you to attend uh, junior high school in another country? 
Well, it, it was uh, you know incredibly exciting and uh, you know exotic for a kid who had been in just a you know, public school in Arlington, Virginia. Before that, um, my parents uh, were, were quite adventurous, and I'm an only kid, so they had the more flexibility to pick up and and take this unique opportunity to to go uh, with a Boeing airplane company to West Africa. It was a um, Boeing's effort to diversify into to new markets, and uh, so he helped uh, launch a new office there for the company. And uh, so it was uh, uh, an incredible experience to, to live in that environment. Uh, it was uh, uh, primarily French-speaking, but of course there are you know, many, many different African languages uh, spoken uh, in and around Dakar. Um, so I was immersed in, uh, in this uh, new environment, uh, learned how to speak French uh, reasonably well, I went to uh, a Baptist missionary school. It was the only English-speaking language, uh, English-language-speaking uh, school in, in town at the at that point, called Dakar Academy. And from there, ended up uh, being able to travel a fair amount through uh, through Africa, um, Central Africa, North Africa, and, and East Africa. I never made it uh, to the southern part of the continent, um, but uh, you know, for a, a young boy to uh, to be surrounded by all these different cultures and, and uh, um, yeah, every every day was uh, was an adventure and I I think that's one of the the biggest lessons that I took from early in life is uh, you know, the the best and most important lessons in life typically come from outside of a textbook uh, you know you have to keep your eyes open for new opportunities uh, meet people travel and uh, what you learn outside of the classroom is is incredibly important. And uh, your parents, what uh, an adventure that they had taken you on. And your father, is he still with Boeing, or has he retired now? My father's retired, but uh, they had a, a wonderful career uh, uh, with the company. Uh, we uh, you know, spent some time in Beirut, Lebanon, and Athens, Greece, and Tehran, Iran. And uh, you know, after uh, I graduated from high school, uh, which was in Athens, Greece, they came back to the United States for a few years then went back to uh, live in Saudi Arabia for a while, and, and then another tour in Athens, Greece. So uh, they really had the you know the travel bug. Wow, exciting, exciting, and, and it really gives you an international perspective. Absolutely. Now, during your time, during your junior high and high school while you were abroad, uh, what principal activities did you find yourself getting involved in? I'm sorry, what kinds of activities? Activities, sports. Uh, sure, mm-hmm. sure. Um, well, I, I was always uh, quite athletic, so I enjoyed uh, basketball. It was probably my core sport, but uh, I ran track. Um, I wasn't very good at football. <laughs> my uh, my senior year of high school was the first time we had uh, a football team available. Um, we had just moved to Tehran, Iran. It was uh, the year was 1978. Uh, we lived there just for four months, and uh, it was the time that the Shah. Uh, was yes. deposed and yes. uh, we left uh, right at the same time and we weren't weren't welcome anymore but right. Uh, right. Um, that first uh, you know the fall quarter of my senior year I, I played football organized football for the first time and I discovered that you know it, I really didn't have the uh, uh, you know the, the fearless attitude that you need for uh, you know uh, being a, a receiver and, and getting uh, you know, hammered by uh, you know, folks that are trying to 
trying to kill you. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but you know, so that I, I know my limitations. But uh, you know, basketball was always a strong suit of mine. Uh, played a little soccer, and then uh, um, uh, ended up doing other sports uh, later in life as well. I it, also about that time, I uh, I guess uh, around 15 years old. That's when I started uh, rock climbing. And, oh, okay. uh, and that uh, was kind of the genesis for uh, uh, the mountaineering that, that followed later in life. Yes, yes. But I, but also in school, I you know I did uh, student council and uh, you know the uh, other types of activities uh, you know within the, the school and uh, went all the way through Boy Scouts and, and got my eagle. Uh, so I, I was a busy guy. Uh, Yes, you, you, you've had a very busy life. I was uh, showing my wife uh, your, uh, biograph- your, your, um, your bio, and she just said, oh, my goodness. She said, is he married? I said, yeah, married with two, two children. That's and right. His, and his wife is very happy. <laughs> she says, well, you, do, you need to do better. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. No, I, anybody can look good on paper, Daryl. Uh, don't believe anything you read. But, uh, that's, that's uh, my, my wife keeps me very well grounded. So. <laughs> And uh, when did you first realize your aspiration to be a leader? Well, uh, I think, um, you know, certainly in my school-age years, having the opportunity to uh, be a leader in student council and, and uh, in scouting. Uh, scouting is a great opportunity to, uh, um, you know, go out into uh, the wilderness, uh, you know, somewhat into harm's way. You know, you're, you're responsible for not only yourself, but your your team and uh, to fend for yourself and to make the right decisions, and uh, you know, I think that uh, that experience has, has served me extremely well over the years. Um, one observation: uh, currently, the, uh, the astronaut corps uses the National Outdoor Leadership School, called Knowles, mm-hmm. uh, more widely uh, as a as a training ground for newly assigned crews. So uh, they'll send. Uh, a crew out uh, for 10 days into the wilderness, and you really develop uh, a sense of uh, your own leadership style as well as uh, those of your, your crewmates, and you find out your strengths and weaknesses, areas where you need to uh, improve uh, such that uh, in the heat of battle uh, on a mission or, or any other situation in life, you can uh, hopefully choose the right leadership style and, and uh, go down the right path. And that's, and that's a very good point in regards to understanding your strengths and understanding your weaknesses. Through this program, um, how, how do you identify what your strengths and weaknesses are? Is, is it through some uh, team building, role playing? Uh, are there different uh, psychological tests that you take to evaluate how you would decide? How, how do they go about to allow you to do this self-evaluation? That's a great question, uh, and it, it's, it's very well uh, matured over many years of uh, these types of uh, field exercises, not just with uh, professionals, but with uh, you know uh, college-age kids who, who also take these courses. Uh, there's a lot of science behind it, but essentially uh, the model is uh, you alternate uh, the responsibility for leadership on a day-by-day basis. So you, you could be a leader one day and then you're a follower uh, on the next days, and uh, and then rotate back in and. The, the tasks are different. Uh, they're in challenging environments. There's navigation, um, you know, care of your team, uh, you know, safety uh, elements, of course. 
and on and on. Some of these are uh, mountaineering environments, uh, sea kayaking, uh, canyoneering, things of, of that nature. But uh, you uh, you do your own self-analysis of uh, um, your performance. Your teammates evaluate you, and it's all out in the open, so you get direct feedback real-time at the end of the day. And then also you, uh, um, in group discussion, talk about the ways that you like to uh, handle certain situations, and they help you uh, identify your leadership style as well as uh, the pitfalls of having that type of leadership style. So for uh, an example, you know, I'm, I tend to uh, like to uh, um, work with teams uh, in a you know, very open uh consensual way, you know, develop a plan as a team and then go about uh, business uh, if at all possible because then you, you uh, establish buy-in, you let everyone have a voice in the, in the decision-making process. But certainly there are times when there's not enough time or if uh, the leader uh, has more situational awareness, um, uh, he or she has to, uh, to act upon that and the rest of the team has to step step in line because there could be a life threat or, or, or what, whatever the, uh, um, the challenge might be. So I, I, that's a bit mm-hmm. of a long-winded no, answer, no, no. but uh, it, it's really an interesting process, and, and I'd really encourage uh, your listeners to consider uh, a Knowles course if they ever have the opportunity. It's, it's a great experience. And it's the, it's the National Outdoor... Leadership School. Leadership School. Yes. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. And, you know, is there like a before and after where that an individual, when they first start with this program at Knowles, where they're evaluated and they say, okay, here's the things I need to improve on over the course of the next three days or the week. And then at the end of the program, is there a, a, an evaluation or a self-evaluation so the individual can see how they have grown? Or is it just so self-evident that the individual knows that, hey, I've improved over the last few days because I'm doing this and this and this better and different? Actually, there is a very uh, structured uh, evaluation process. Uh, You uh, are evaluated by uh, your teammates and then by your your guides. There are two instructors that, uh, at least for the the courses that uh, I've been a part of, uh, accompany you into the field. They're also well trained in in the Knowles leadership model, so they they have uh, you know, structured discussions in the evenings to uh, to help you understand uh, your strengths and weaknesses and and uh, effective leadership styles. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they'll also provide uh, written feedback, and it only goes to you. It's not mm-hmm. something that you know gets publicized or or shared with anyone. But it's a, a really valuable tool, and I've I've used it uh, you know my benefit uh, many, many times. Well, that's a program that I'm going to look forward to taking myself because I've been through a number of leadership training exercises, and uh, I think this is something that uh, will challenge me physically as well um, and also uh, allow me to challenge myself mentally. So it sounds like an excellent program. I'll be sure. Great, to, great. I'll, I'll, yeah. be, I'll be sure to have this posted on our website uh, so that folks can uh, link right over to that. And and to the point of leadership, in your opinion, what are the the key traits of the found of a foundation of a good leader that a leader m- really must have? Well, I, I consider uh, listening as uh, uh, an absolute uh, you know, and a critical strength for for any leader, um, and it. 
it had been one of my pitfalls in the past. You know, if, if you're if you're technically competent, if you have expertise in a certain area, it's easy to to just jump in and uh, make a decision and uh, and go with it. Perhaps in advance of uh, other people getting on the same page with you, there there might be someone in the room who have, who actually knows something more than you do or or differently. And uh, so what I try to do is uh, be the last one around the table to speak if, if I am the leader in a certain situation uh, to let other people uh, you know share their their thoughts uh, you know really try and tug out of people uh, their honest opinions on on matters uh, before making a decision um, there's certain times of course where you don't have that luxury of time but um, I think uh, being a good listener is uh, is just as important as as being, you know, bright, technically competent, and so on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in your opinion, uh, I know right now there's someone listening to this program who is doing some. Uh, uh, they're 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 thinking about how they can improve their uh, particular style of leadership. Um, how would you recommend that they get started on this path of being a great leader? Well, uh, I, I think there's certain certainly wonderful books out there that you can, uh, you know, purchase and read and and uh, try and incorporate into your own uh, style. You know, I've I've always really admired uh, General Colin Powell, so I've read a number of his books, and you know, there there are all sorts of people that uh, you, know, you, you may have in your your day to day life. Uh, there's one. Uh, Senior manager here at NASA that I had the opportunity to work with uh, quite closely uh, a few years ago, and and uh, I, I always uh, uh, try and think uh, when I'm in a challenging situation, you know, what would Alan do in this uh, particular situation? And uh, so to uh, to either actively seek out mentorship from leaders that uh, you know and respect, or you know. I, Go to Amazon.com and and uh, and start reading some some of the great books. Excellent, excellent. Let's talk about your space travel for a moment because it is such an outstanding and awesome uh, track record. Five missions covering twenty three point four million miles. You have orbited the Earth about nine hundred and two times. You have spent about thirteen hundred and eighty one hours in space, and you've done multiple spacewalks. I mean, what an awesome track record. Of all of your experience in space, which is the, the, the one experience that really stands out uh, as, as, as a memory that you will always have of your times in space? Well, thank you. There have been so many amazing uh, experiences. You know, I kind of uh, liken it to, uh, uh, you know, one of those Shirley MacLaine out-of-body experiences. You know, you, you just can't believe that you're you're actually out there in this uh, unbelievable environment, especially outside on a spacewalk. Uh, it's uh, it's like uh, like a dream, uh, clearly. But I would say uh, my last mission, uh, which was uh, called STS-120, and uh, it's a very complicated uh, space station assembly mission uh, during which I did four spacewalks. Uh, but the most memorable was uh, actually an unscheduled, unplanned spacewalk where we had to go repair a torn solar array. And this was something that 
we had never envisioned uh, happening, uh, had never trained for in our water tank, uh, had no procedures for, and uh, the the failure occurred after we had relocated this large solar array truss out at the very end of the space station, and uh, we were, uh, by computer command, deploying the solar arrays to extend. And unfortunately, a, a set of guide wires had become frayed mm. and caught on some of the panels and ripped them apart. And uh, it was unsafe at this point for us to undock the shuttle. It was uh, impossible for us to bring up any of the, the future laboratory modules because there wouldn't have been enough power to support them. So this is a, a critical uh, uh, milestone for the, uh, the space program. And within 72 hours, brilliant men and women uh, at NASA you know, worked uh, around the clock to figure out a way to get me out to the very tip of the space station beyond uh, any place we'd ever been before uh, in a way that had never been imagined using a, a kind of a jury-rigged uh, inspection boom latched together onto the uh, the main robotic arm of the uh, the space station. Uh, it was just unbelievable. Uh, it was at the very reaches of my you know, six-foot-three reach uh, on the end of this 90-foot-long cobbled uh, robotic boom to get me out to this torn solar array, and I had to uh, clip out a guide wire that had frayed and then put in stabilizing braces so that the solar array panel could be deployed. And I, I liken it to uh, you know, the, the space station, space shuttle era's Apollo 13. It yes. was a, mm. you know, what what do the the crew members up on on orbit have available to them? What can they use to to get out there, and then what can they use to fix it? And so, uh, just a, an amazing team effort, um, not only uh, on the ground in Houston, but various NASA centers around the country, and then uh, our entire crew was involved. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here with chills because I remember watching you do this on CNN. <laughs> and I, I just I says, wait a minute. I remember that. That is awesome. I was like, man, that is really awesome what they're doing. And here I am interviewing you. Wow. This is this is an out of body experience for me because all of a sudden all of these images of CNN and watching you repair this uh, out when you're out there in space, which was which was quite complex. They had reported at the time. There, there was a uh, yeah, it, 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 it was. Thank you for your kind words. It was my best day on the job ever. I've got to say, but um, yeah, there it was a, a live uh, solar race, so there was still 100 volts of energy um, coursing through the the panel. So had to be very careful not to touch the uh, the panels in any way, especially with any metal objects uh, associated with my suit. And uh, but uh, you know we're able to go out there with with careful planning and all of the training that we had done. Uh, up to that point, uh, even though this is an entirely unscripted uh, type of spacewalk, we're able to get the job done. And, and that's, you know, the, the beauty of NASA, being able to go out and uh, accomplish these things that uh, um, are really hard but make them look, uh, you know, pretty easy. So, Wow. Awesome, just simply awesome. And and when you b- before you go to a flight, before you go to a flight in space, um, what is the preparation that you have to go to to get yourself ready for a flight? Well, uh, it's about two years of one to two years of basic training. We call it astronaut candidate training, uh, where you learn all the basics of uh, orbital mechanics and 
space weather, uh, meteorology, uh, space uh, physiology, uh, material science and microgravity, all these different fundamentals, uh, as well as all the space shuttle systems and then all the space uh, station systems. And uh, once you have the fundamentals down, then you're assigned to your first mission, uh, which then takes a year to a year and a half to prepare for the you know, specific elements on that particular flight. So if you're taking up a new mod module, you'll have to, uh, to learn all the ins and outs of that, the procedures for installing it, uh, for doing the spacewalks, to uh, uh, outfit it, and, and so on. So it's a, it's a very intense uh, process. Uh, but it's also a lot of fun. The, uh, the training environments that we have include a big water tank where we practice spacewalks. We have motion simulators that uh, rock and roll like the shuttle does on, on launch and landing. Uh, we have virtual reality simulators that allow us to practice the robotics and, and spacewalks that we do and, and rendezvous and docking procedures. And uh, yeah, it, I just love it. It's, uh, it's also an opportunity to work with people from around the world. The, the space program in, involves a number of international partners to include Canada, Japan, Russia, uh, a number of European countries, and the list continues to grow. Wow, okay. And I, I take it that the, the crew that's, that's getting ready for this, this flight mission uh, two years in advance, uh, it's a group of folks who, uh, there's, there, I guess there's a commander of the, of the group and who, mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. leads the group. And, and talk to us about the leadership protocol that happens uh, during the, the preparation leading up to the flight. Uh, great question. Well, uh, for a space shuttle uh, flight, there is a, a mission commander who is the, uh, basically the person that will sit in the left seat and, uh, uh, for the launch and landing and actually physically land the mission. And that person is uh, responsible for the overall uh, mission uh, safety and success. So you know, the buck stops uh, with him or her in that seat. Uh, but there's, there's also uh, uh, distributed leadership, I would say, um, so, mm -hmm. for example, I was the lead spacewalker, so everything to do with uh, spacewalking from uh, our training program to uh, the actual execution of those uh, spacewalks uh, and all the spacewalking crew members uh, was on my shoulder. Um, of course, on my last mission, uh, my commander, her name was uh, Pam Melroy, a colonel in the Air Force. Um, I would I'd keep her uh, up to speed on everything that uh, we were uh, planning to do, and um, of course she had uh, ultimate veto power if uh, if she saw something wasn't uh, you know, going along with uh, you know the overall mission priorities. But uh, typically the way it works is uh, um, you know, distributed leadership. So we had people that were responsible for the robotic assembly tasks, and and uh, and on and on. Um, you have also a, a very highly motivated uh, um, workforce, and uh, I rarely find myself in a position where I had to use an autocratic, you know, leadership style. You know, if, uh, if it was the right thing to do, uh, pretty much everyone uh, was right on the same page with you, and you just marched off and did it. Wow. It's a, it's a great, uh, great environment to work in. Uh, the other thing that I would mention is that mm -hmm. there is the space station, of course, on orbit, uh, which has a different crew. And so uh, 
uh, there's a space station commander, and so when the two spacecraft come together and dock, then it's uh, kind of a shared leadership uh, between the two commanders. Um, and then I guess the ultimate deciding authority, uh, if there were ever a, that sort of a, a conflict, uh, would be mi- made by mission control. Mm-hmm. The lead flight director has the overall responsibility for uh, mission safety and success. Right, right. Well, Scott, this has been a very, very fast uh, 30 minutes. We are at the close of our time. You're going to come back with us next week to uh, finish up our discussions about space and also Mount Everest, correct? Look forward to it. You bet. Right. Well, we are here with Dr. Scott E. Parazinski. Scott, we want to thank you for your time today, and uh, we look forward to our discussion next week. This is Darrell Gunter, your host of Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM, Seton Hall University, and streaming on the web at WSOU.net. Remember, leadership begins with you.